Okay. So, tonight we are going to continue with the, uh, the foundation series that we have been in for the past several weeks. And, um, you know, the foundation series is all about like knowing what it is that you believe, getting back to the basics, back to the foundations, the core of your faith, so that you can really understand what you believe and that as you go out into the world to, to live it out, uh, you're able to give an answer for what you believe. You know, not in an argumentative way, but that you can have confidence about what you believe and that you can, you can live out of that confidence. Um, so foundations, we're taking a look at different aspects of faith and, um, you know, whether these are new concepts or not to you, uh, just trust that, that uh, God's going to show you something tonight about what he's calling you to, how he's calling you to develop and grow in the faith. Because one thing I have learned over the years is faith isn't a once and done thing. You know, life keeps coming. Situations keep changing. New challenges pop up. Sometimes even with new victories, there's challenges in the victory. And so uh, we never stop growing. We never stop growing. God never stops working on us. He just keeps refining us more and more into his character, into his likeness. And uh, it's a journey. It's a lifelong journey. So, so there you go. That's the setup. Uh, Romans 6, 1 through 14 is the passage that we're going to be in. And we're going to be talking about new life in Christ. And that's what this passage kind of talks about is uh, a new life in Christ. And so we're asking that, whoa, whoa, kind of tight up here. Uh, we're asking the question, what does this new life look like? What's it supposed to look like? I mean, it sounds great, new life. But what's that look like, practically speaking? And before we get into this, there's, I want to, there's, since I knew I was going to uh, preach on this, I felt prompted to say this tonight. And it's, I don't mean to make it all, sound all mystical because this is, this is something that's in God's word. So it doesn't have to be all mystical because right there I can read about it. But somebody in here is coming in tonight thinking, I've blown it. And, um, you know, I've really screwed up. And you're carrying a sense of shame and a sense of guilt. And what I want to say to you, what I felt prompted to say to you for over a month, is that there is nothing you can do that would separate you from the love of Jesus. That it's not about your performance. That you have value no matter what. Even so much that he thought you were worth dying for. So that he could have a relationship with you. And then there's one more thing that I have felt prompted to say, and that is, if you're somebody who's been hurt, if you're somebody who's been let down, if you're somebody who's been um, feeling like you're forgotten, I, I want to tell you that God has not forgotten you, that he sees, that he is working something out, that maybe the timeline you would like it to be worked out in is not the same as the timeline that it's going to be worked out in. But he is on it. And you are not alone. I've known the mother of a young man uh, who, who struggled over the years with a number of different things. 
And recently his, his mom sent me an email uh, copying down his Facebook post. And she was just, you know, rejoicing over this post because it was, it just filled her with such hope. So with her permission, I've asked if I could read the post. So here it is. He writes, I always knew that life was worth living. I just didn't know why. I'm not going to rant about what I've been through or who I've been with as if I'm the only one in the world, but without my friends I've made and my family supporting me in my darkest hour or decade even, I would still be clueless as to why people say life is good. The last two years I've been more sober than inebriated in the total two-year time frame. I relapsed a couple times and I've been sober since mid-October. More than anything, I want to stay sober and improve my life, not pollute it with drugs. I've seen too much destruction around unhealthy habits and have spent too much of my life having them. It's not easy, but when you gain the clarity of the hard work paying off that you put into bettering your life, you see more than before. You see the fruits of your labor, which is not only easy on the eyes and mind, but something no one can take away from you. If you know someone struggling to grow in their life, Don't cast them away. Open your arms. Give them a hug. Say everything is going to be okay. Just give it time. Someone said to me one of my times I was in jail and it motivated me to keep pushing. Someone said that to me when I was in jail. It motivated me to keep pushing. It resonated in me. It was truth. The thought has never left me and I feel as though I'm on the verge of moving from it's going to be fine to it is fine. What pains me the most out of all my short 29 and a half years is knowing someone out there who really wanted to do good but couldn't break through the hate and deceit of the world and lost their life because of it. This happens all too often and is the root of my depression. I've been mentally hospitalized over 25 times, all revolving around depression. Who's going to be there to help that one person who needs help getting through their mental and physical states? someone waiting for them on the other side of the wall they are hoping to get through? What if you just ignored them and they're no longer with us? I see these things all over the world leading to extreme choices and consequences, and ignoring this sadness and insanity is not going to help anyone. Open your hearts, say hello to a stranger, and love someone for the sake of a better life. Now, Say, you think what you want about these words, but what I hear when I read this is someone who is just honest. They're not trying to be all theological or all spiritual, even though I know that faith is a part of this person's life, but they're just raw and open and honest, and they're putting it out there. And they're just working it out one day at a time. And they're not pretending to be better than they are. They're being authentic. And I just have such respect for that. And whether you can identify with any of those issues or not, we all have things that we carry in this world, things that we struggle with. Whether it's the place you were born or the body you were given or the gender that you are or the... Uh, predispositions genetically that you have or the people who are around you or the home you were born into or the lack of a home or a certain part of the world 
that had certain resources or didn't have them, the opportunities that you had or didn't have, uh, these things are all layered into you. And there's no magic wand that you wave over the situation to take it all away. You work it out one day at a time. And so with that as kind of the introduction, I want to get into this passage. And it's a complex passage to understand. It could almost turn you off because you might think, this passage doesn't reflect my experience in the world. <laughs> but, but once we dig into it, I hope that you will see that uh, it might not be exactly what you think on first read. So we'll start with uh, verse 1, chapter 6 of Romans. It says, what shall we say then? Are we to remain in sin so that grace may increase? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So now he's, he's asking this question, uh, or he's, he's opening chapter 6 this way because of the, the issue that he raised in chapter 5. It was an idea that had been gaining in popularity in the Roman church, and so he's addressing it. This is his letter to the Roman church, the book of Romans. And this concept was, you know, if, if God likes forgiving people, and when he forgives people, that, that is him showing grace, and the more grace he shows, the more glory he gets, then shouldn't I just keep sinning? Because then God gets to keep forgiving, and then there's more grace, and then there's more glory. And, and that was an idea that uh, was, I mean, it may sound ridiculous to you, or some of you may go, hey, that kind of makes sense. Uh, but, but this is not an idea that's, that's like, this is, idea's been around. Uh, the Voltaire wrote, I enjoy sinning, God enjoys forgiving, so everything is fine. Uh, there was a Russian monk named Rasputin, who's kind of somewhat well-known. This was his idea. Like, hey, we should all go out and sin more because then when we sin, we really feel bad about it and we repent and then God gets to graciously forgive us and he's glorified. Rasputin had a major, like, major following in Russia. He was a, a monk in Russia. He, he had a close relationship with the Tsar. A lot of people think that the, the types of activities that he got his followers involved in, which were... I mean, I'm not even going to mention them. You can probably, you know, if I'm not saying it, you probably know what it's all about, okay? This is church, so I'm not going to get into it. But, but, uh, but it was some pretty seedy stuff. And a lot of people think that that kind of at least contributed to the fall of the Tsar eventually in the, the Russian revolt because people were so turned off by this uh, influence that he had. But this was the basis of his following. This is how he attracted people to following him. But Paul here in verse 1 is saying, nope, that is the wrong conclusion. We are not given grace so that we can just keep on sinning. That's not the point. It's kind of like we live in a free country, right? Seeing if anybody wanted to debate me. Uh, we, we live in a free country and, you know, the point of that isn't so that we can go out and break the law. Like, that's not the point. We're free so that we can pursue, uh, you know, well, in America they say, you know, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Like, we're free that we can, to live a good life. 
We're not free so that we can like cause trouble and take advantage of our freedom. No, that's not the point. We're set free in order to be free. Okay, so verse 3. Or do you not know that as many as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, when you hear the word baptize, you probably think of water baptism, but that's not actually what the word baptize mean, means. The, the word baptize means total immersion, to be completely immersed in. So, you know, here we're, uh, when, when, we're, when we do a water baptism, we're completely immersed in water. Uh, here, Paul is saying we are baptized into Jesus' death. So what he is saying is we are when we put our faith in him, we are completely immersed in that death. We are covered by it completely. So why are we covered completely? Next verse, uh, verse 4. Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too may live a new life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be united in the likeness of his resurrection. So what Paul is saying here is that just like Jesus died and was resurrected, we will be resurrected when we die. In other words, our relationship to death has changed through our faith in Jesus. Our relationship to death has changed. But that's not the only relationship that changes when we make a decision to follow Christ. The passage goes on to say, and this is where it gets kind of tricky. Verse 6, we know that our old man was crucified with him so that the body of sin would no longer dominate us, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For someone who has died has been freed from sin. So, our relationship with death has changed. Our relationship with sin has changed. How? Well, it says here that we were enslaved to sin. That was our relationship with sin. We were its slave. But now, we're not. We're not enslaved to sin. Well, you might wonder, well, okay, let's take first things first. How is somebody who doesn't follow Christ enslaved to sin? Well, there's a couple ways that I can think about. And I didn't become a Christian until I was 30 years old. Um, I know I look probably like I'm about 31, 32, so I haven't been doing this that long. But um, there are two ways that I could think of and that ring true to me, having lived the first 30 years of my life. Um, as not being a, a follower of Christ, in fact, quite the opposite. But that's all in the book. Uh, it's available for Muddy Pearl out in the foyer after the service. So two ways. One is blindness and one is minimization. So let's take blindness. Well, no, let's take minimization first. So minimization is when you're like, yeah, I did this, but, you know, it's no big deal. It's not a big deal. It's not hurting anybody, you know. It's, it's really not such a big thing. Okay, so that's minimization. Blindness, on the other hand, is like, you don't even know it's wrong. Like, you don't even have a concept that it might be wrong. In fact, it seems pretty all right to you. I remember being a kid, and, uh, and I could give you lots of examples of this, but again, here's one I can share in church. Um, 
I remember being a kid and they and going to the shops and they had these like troughs of candy sitting out, you know, right at kid eye level. And I always just thought they were free. I just thought this is like a bonus for going to the shop with my mom as I get one of these candies. And so uh, we're walking out of the shop one day and I'm chewing on a caramel or something. And my mom see, notices and she looks down and she's like, what are you doing? Um, what do you got in your mouth? I'm like, candy. She's like, well, where'd you get that from? Knowing that she didn't give me any candy. I'm like, I got it from the shop. What do you mean you got it from the shop? Did you pay for it? No. That's stealing. And we went back into the shop and I had to go up to the lady and say, I took a candy. I'm sorry, I didn't know. And we paid for it. And that was it. And that was how I found out. Now, that's a small example. But how many times have you been in that situation? And it really doesn't matter if it's blindness or minimization, where you're doing something, and whether you knew it was wrong or you didn't really know, think it was wrong at all, once the impact is felt, once you're caught, once it becomes clear to other people what you've done, once the impact of what you've done has played itself out, and you're confronted with the consequences of your choices, at that point it becomes very clear that this was wrong. And it didn't matter how you rationalized it or justified it, you've hurt someone. You've done some damage. And at that point, it's clear, you're guilty. Later in Romans 6, Paul writes, so what benefit did you then reap from those things that you're now ashamed of? For the end of those things is death. But now, freed from sin and enslaved to God, you have your benefit leading to sanctification and the end is eternal life. For the payoff of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sin leads to death. It leads to physical death, ultimately. But there's all kinds of other deaths that it leads to. The death of a potential future, the death of an opportunity, the death of a relationship, the death of a, of a skill set that you could have had. But righteousness leads to life. Following God produces health. It produces wellness. It leads you down a path that is you can walk in the open, in the plainness of day, in the light of relationship. Something that you don't have to be ashamed of and ultimately uh, to eternal life. Okay, but you say, well, what if you're a believer who sins? You know, in that sense, like, what, what's it like? How, how can we say that sin has been put to death? Uh, how can we say that we've been released from the bondage of sin? Well, we're gonna talk about that in a second, but, but first let me just say this, that Jesus paid the penalty for sin on the cross, and it says our old man, the person we were before we began a relationship with Jesus, was crucified with him, and now we are no longer sin slave because that old man has been put to death. There's a classic line in the movie Spartacus. I don't know <laughs> uh, if anybody's seen that recently. Probably not. It's like 40 years old or something. But uh, there, it's, it's about the, the uh, revolution or a revolt of slaves in ancient Rome. 
And at one point, there's like 90,000 of them. And they're revolting against Rome. And Spartacus is explaining why all these slaves are so willing to die. And he has this great line. He says, um, death is the only freedom a slave knows. And so they're not afraid to die because that's their, that's their chance at freedom. Colossians 3.3 says, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So the idea here is that this person we were before we became a believer has died and now you're a new person. It's as if you've got this contract with death and, and or I'm sorry, it's like you've got this contract with sin that is legally, spiritually binding as long as you're alive. But when you die, it ends the contract. It breaks the binding nature of this contract that you have. And so just as Christ is raised again to live a new life, you're raised to live a new life. That contract doesn't hold you spiritually anymore. Your life is hidden with Christ. The debt of sin is paid. The contract has run its full length. That's what that verse is saying. So... Now, getting back to the main question, okay, you know, if, if I'm a believer, if we're believers, me and my friends here, or me and my partner here, if, if we're believers and now we're not under the slavery of sin, then why do they keep sinning still? That was, not, that was, a, that was meant to be a joke. I was waiting for the laughter to catch up to the line. No, if we're honest, the real question is, you know, why do I keep sinning still if the, if, the, if the yoke of sin is off of me? But that's not what this verse is saying. This verse is not saying once you become a believer, you stop sinning. And there's two ways that we can know that this verse is not saying that. First of all, if that's what it were saying, then Paul wouldn't have to be arguing it through this whole book. Because if it were true that people just stopped sinning once they became a Christian, then it would be obvious. Like, people would become Christians, all of a sudden they live these perfect lives, no need to talk about it any further, it's clear. He wouldn't be arguing the point. But the second way that we can know that this isn't what he's saying is that just Two chapters later in Romans 8, Paul writes this. For I don't understand what I'm doing. I don't do what I want. Instead, I do what I hate. If I do what I don't want, I agree that the law is good. But now it is no longer me doing it. But sin that lives in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my flesh. For I want to do the good, but I cannot do it. I do not do the good I want, but I do the very evil I do not want. Now, if I do not do what I... Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer me doing it, but sin that lives in me. So Paul wouldn't say like, hey, once you become a believer, you stop sinning. And then two books or two verses, chapters later, say, I sin all the time. I'm a sinner. Please help me, Lord. Like that doesn't make any sense. So let's read on back in Romans 6, 8. So back to Romans 6 now. For if we died with Christ, because so now the question is, well, if that's not what it's saying, well, what is it saying? 
Okay. So now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that since Christ has been raised from the dead, he is never going to die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So too, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So we get the part about death, right? We die, we go to heaven, death no longer has a hold on us. Got it. That makes sense. But it's this bit about our relationship to sin that's tricky to understand. So, first of all, if you have put your faith in Jesus, you need to know that you are, as far as God is concerned, you are dead to sin and alive in Christ. Sin can't enslave you the way it once did because you now know that it's there, you know what it is, you know that it's serious. It's not to be minimized. It wants to have its way with you. It wants to worm its way into your life. It wants to get you to make little compromises that will later lead to bigger and bigger and bigger compromises until it gets what it wants, what is fully grown, which is death. That's what it wants. But still, even knowing that, you might give in, it, give in to it at times. You might buckle to temptation. So here's the best I think this is, this is what the passage is saying, our relationship to sin is. Has anybody in here ever been in an, don't raise your hands. Has anybody in here ever been in an unhealthy relationship? Or seen someone go through an unhealthy relationship? So, in the beginning of a relationship like that, it's like you focus on the good qualities of the person. You focus on the good times, the fun that you have together. And because you care about them, you kind of ignore the bad stuff. You ignore the consequences of being with them. You ignore the way that they cause you to compromise your values or get you doing things that you don't really want to do. You know, but eventually it kind of all comes to a head and you, you realize, like, this is not going to work out. And you do the breakup. You know, it's not, it's not you, it's me. You know, you're, you're fine, but I just need, you know, we've just grown apart, and I just need to go my path, and you need to go yours. Okay? So you do that. You've broken up. But then what happens? I'm not saying this has happened to you or anything, but I heard about a guy once that this happened to and they go through that period of, okay, we're broken up, but, you know, late one night, the phone rings or somebody texts you, like, hey, what you do? You know, the, the one that you broke up with has texted you, what you doing? You want to you wanna hang out sometime? You know, what, you want me to come over maybe? And you're like, oh, I'm kind of lonely. I'm kind of bored. And you kind of remember, like, well, there were some fun times. And pretty soon, you're back together again. But then what happens after that, pretty soon you realize, I remember exactly why we broke up. And then you're trying to get them out again. And sometimes it works the other way. You're, you're at home alone, and you're like, I'm kind of bored, I'm kind of lonely, and you text them. Hey, what you doing? Thinking about the good times, thinking about the fun times, thinking about the good parts of the relationship. But then again, pretty soon, you realize, like, man, 
this was a mistake. And all those old consequences and all those old guilty or shameful feelings come back. And you're like, man, we really needed to stay broken up. And that's what our relationship is like with sin as believers. We are broken up. You know, the word repent means to turn in the other direction, to turn away from. It's like you're going this direction with sin, and then you're like, this is bad. This is unhealthy. I don't want to be this person. And so you repent and you turn to God. But every now and then, sin is over there going, hey, remember me? We used to have fun together. Remember the good times? You're bored, aren't you? Come on back. And you're like, well, maybe I am kind of bored. Or, or you're going along with God and then you're like, gosh, I kind of remember those good times. And you decide to go back. Because see, your flesh, the part of you that just wants to be gratified, the part of you that just wants to feel good, is always going to be there with you, calling you back into something you know is unhealthy. You know it. You're not enslaved to it. You have a choice. And you choose it anyway because of that short-term payoff. And knowing even then the long-term consequence comes and you're like, man, why did I do this again? And then also the devil doesn't stop coming. There's an enemy. He is prowling, prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He wants to take you down. He doesn't want that breakup to stick. He wants you to go back into that unhealthy relationship with sin. He knows he can't enslave you, but he can sure slow you down from the life that God has called you to the life of purpose and meaning and fulfillment. So, Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. See, here's the thing about freedom. If you don't get to go back and choose to be a slave again, then you're not even really free. You have to be able to make a choice to be free. He cannot take that away from you. If he could, he would, but it would be a logical contradiction. And God doesn't do that. He's a rational, orderly God. He laid out the world in a, in a specific way. Freedom requires you to be able to make a choice. Back to the end of our passage. Verse 12, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires and do not present your members to sin as instruments to be used for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who are alive from the dead and your members to God as instruments to be used for righteousness. For sin will have no mastery over you because you are not under the law but under grace. Now what does this mean? I mean, there's so much in here. We just don't have time to go through it all. But this bit about what does this mean about presenting your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, okay? It means don't let your body be used for sin. And whatever you might think, be thinking about right now might be the thing that you struggle with the most. But let me point out a couple ways in which you might present the members of your body for unrighteousness that you might not be thinking about. First, James 3, 7 through 10. 
for every kind of animal, bird, reptile, and sea creature is subdued and has been subdued by humankind. But no human being can subdue the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse people made in God's image. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. These things should not be so, my brothers and sisters. We don't often think about, am I presenting my tongue, my mouth, the words that I say to be used for unrighteousness or for righteousness? Or how about your mind? 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5. We tear down arguments and every arrogant obstacle that is raised up against the knowledge of God and we take every thought captive to make it obey Christ. The things we think lead to our emotions, lead to our behaviors, lead to our impact on the world. So what are we thinking about? Not just in the moment, but what are the beliefs that underlie our thoughts about our identity, about the world around us, about other people and how it's all supposed to work together? So much trouble comes from thoughts that are not obedient to Christ. I tell you, if we could work on those two, our thinking and what comes out of our mouth, going to be way ahead of the game. Now, Greek scholars tell us that the verb in the Greek that is translated present, as in, you know, how do you present your members for righteousness or unrighteousness, is a bit technical here, but it's in the aorist tense, which basically means it's not once and done. It's something you do at a definitive point in time, but then you keep on doing it. So you do it, and then you keep doing it. And this reminds me of, uh, I was in a recovery ministry, and we had um, accountability plans, and I typically don't like accountability plans, but I like the way that we did it in this group, which was, you write down the stuff that you feel called to work on. And then you get a partner, and you say to them, here's the stuff that I feel called to work on. I want you to ask me these 10 questions every time we meet. And you come up with the questions. And then you meet with them, and they ask you the questions. And if you haven't done the stuff that you said you wanted to do, the per your accountability partner says to you, well, is that still an important goal for you? And if the answer is yes, then they say, well, what do you think happened that got you off track? And you might have an idea of what that is. And then you, they'd say, well, is that thing likely to happen again? And if the answer is yes, then they say, well, is there some way that you want to change your approach to this situation so that you don't do that again? And then you tweak your plan. And that's it. It's not beating you up about it. It's not telling you that you're a failure. It's not telling you that you didn't have enough faith or you just didn't believe enough. It's just, you know, one iteration at a time, you learn, you make a better plan, you grow, you change. One iteration at a time. In an atmosphere of love and grace, where you can't lose the relationship because it's so secure. And there's nothing that you will ever be able to do to lose the relationship. 
I had a guy who I worked with for a while, he had a sexual addiction, and he must have relapsed 40 times. And every time I met with him, the first thing I said to him was, I want you to know how much I respect you for coming to me and talking about this with me. Because I wanted him to not be ashamed. Because I wanted him to know that it didn't matter how many times he relapsed. He was still valuable to God. And because he's valuable to God, he's valuable to me. And yeah, there were consequences at times for him, not from me, but from other people. But I just kept loving him. And you know what? He's becoming an amazing leader and he has an incredible testimony. And I'm so glad that he kept pressing in. And that's what this is all about. That's what Romans 6, 1 through 14 is about. It's not a magic wand putting your faith in Christ. But it does bring you into a relationship that you can never lose, where you slowly become aware of the issues that God has laid on your heart to become aware of and to work on. And it doesn't matter how many iterations it takes, you will become convicted of the things that you need to address in your life. You will see the obvious advantages of following God in your life. You will see the hope that that produces and the positive effect that that has on the world around you. And you will slowly want more and more of that and it will, hap- and it will go on your entire life. And that is the journey of being a Christian and of following Jesus. So three quick points of application. The first thing is, if you feel convicted to, <laughs> to break up with sin, you know, if you've got this sin thing in your life and you're like, you know what? Hey, this isn't working out. You know, it's not, it's not you, it's me. But this isn't working out. And I just think we need to be apart. Then start a relationship with Jesus. You know, break up with sin and you be united with Christ. That's a relationship that you will never lose and he'll never lead you astray. You want to take your time, that's okay. But it's you who's missing out. It's, you don't get back the time that you lose. You don't get back, but God can make your crooked path straight. Let that start today. So number two, uh, once you give your life to Christ, then take advantage of the resources that he has for you. His word, his people, good friends. Uh, You know, I hear there's a good book out in the foyer available after the service that'll really help you on this walk with Christ. But whatever it is, you know, podcast, whatever it is, take advantage of the resources. Lean into the process. Work it out one iteration at a time, knowing that you are completely secure in your relationship with Christ. He will never leave you or forsake you. So you can be honest. You got nothing to lose with him. And then the third point is you've, you know, so you've, you know, you've put your trust in Christ. You're working it out one iteration at a time. Then what? Figure out, pray into, ask other people, find out why, God, why have you had me on this path, had me on this path? What are you calling me to? 
What is the purpose of my life? Why did you make me? Why did you allow me to go through these things? Why did you give me the gifts that you've given me? Why did you give me the resources that you've given me? What do you want to do with me, Lord? I know that life isn't just about me feeling good. You made me for a purpose. So what is that purpose? What do I need to do to live it out? Create a God-sized vision, something that you could never do on your own. And then go after it. With everything you've got, that's where it gets exciting. That's where it gets fun. That's where you get to see how even the stuff in your past that was hard can be used for the good of those who love God. There's nothing better. There is nothing better. So let me pray for us. And I guess the band will come back up. All right. Band, come on up. Lord, we love you. Uh, you, are, you are the best. You are the top. There is nothing that we could aspire to that would be higher than a relationship with you because it is your glory. When your glory fills the earth, that is the best thing that could ever happen for any of us. And so we want to see more of your glory, more of your kingdom. We want to know the role that you have for us and live it out. Help us to chase it. Give us the strength when it's hard. Comfort us when we feel ashamed or when we feel hurt. And encourage us on to do the things that you made us to do. Take away every obstacle, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.